I'm Gracie Mae Bradley and welcome to the Locating Legacies series, created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press and funded by Arts Council England. On the last episode of Locating Legacies, I spoke with Vijay Prashad about how the legacies of the Cold War are continuing to influence and shape present day politics. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with my friend Sita Balani. Sita is a lecturer in English at Queen Mary University of London. She is the author of Deadly and Slick, How Sex Makes Race in Postcolonial Britain, and co-author of Empire's Endgame. Sita and I will explore the legacies of queer liberation struggles on contemporary class politics, and the ways in which queer radicalism has expanded notions of liberatory politics in the everyday. Sita, I am really pleased to be speaking to you today. Obviously, you are a friend, but also somebody whose work I really enjoy engaging with. And I think I find you particularly helpful in pushing us to think beyond the take, pushing us to think beyond the kind of binaries that we're being offered and more deeply about what is actually happening. Um, So that's really going to be the theme of our discussion today. And I want to start off with something that you wrote in a piece in 2019 called Queer Vertigo. And I'll quote, you wrote, a rainbow flag used to mean a gay bar. In a new city, a pride flag in a pub window meant the promise of fellow travellers, of sugary pop music and old queens propping up the bar, of gruff lesbians playing pool in the back room and drag with no name at the weekend. It meant the tantalising possibility of sex. Now it means Pret-a-Manger, Boots, H&M, Topshop, HSBC. It means it's June. Um, And that's a pretty wry reflection. And I think a good way in to thinking about how neoliberal constellations of identity politics are affecting queer liberation struggles. And this is something that I've also been thinking about in light of the acquisition of Twitter by emerald miner Elon Musk I could say more things about him but I don't want to get sued and I know that reports of Twitter's death may be greatly exaggerated but on the one hand we've got people who are really really tired of so-called influencer activism queer or otherwise at the same time there have been so many people emphasizing what the platform has done for them in enabling them to redistribute resources and information in the absence of access to more regular or formal structures. So I know that that's kind of a loose constellation of observations that I've just thrown at you, but I'm interested in your analysis of the lay of the land. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Gracie. Um, I guess one of the ways that I'd want to start thinking about this is... Uh, to think about that quotation you read out from the piece that I wrote a couple of years ago, which is a little bit, maybe it was a little bit indulgent of me, but I had been thinking about how much had been changed in my own lifetime. So it's been 20 years since critiques of pinkwashing, of homonationalism, of homonormativity, so, you know, the imbrication of gay life and consumerism or the imbrication of gay life and nationalism have gained prominence. So we've had almost two decades of thinking about these things in public and in a way... Sometimes I wonder if it's kind of empty or redundant to continue to make that critique. But nonetheless, it's worth pausing on the speed of change. So, you know, I was born in the late 80s, and that was still the moment in which state repression of consensual sex between men was subject to serious state repression. So sex between men was only decriminalised in 67, and even after that, 
two men having sex in a house in a private room where for example a housemate was present even that was still illegal and so we were still at that point seeing men entrapped by so-called pretty police so cruising cottaging was still subject to huge police crackdowns and so actually to think about the speed of change since then I think is something quite extraordinary so Section 28, which was the legislation, the Thatcherite legislation that prevented local authorities from so-called promoting homosexuality, that was only repealed in 2003. And it was only a year later that civil partnerships were put on the books. So that's an incredible shift in almost no time. And then in the early 2010s, we see uh, equal marriage, gay marriage become legal, be on the books. So I think we've seen these huge, huge social changes Homophobia simply cannot exercise the same social and political force in the UK that it could even two decades ago. Transphobia is, of course, a different matter, and we'll get to that. So I think we can see that liberal gay rights have, to a significant degree, been won. And that, I think, we should emphasise. So, of course, there is still gay bashing in the street. People still experience huge shame and suffering. But the everyday reality of social homophobia is nowhere near as pervasive and at the same time our general conditions have massively deteriorated the welfare state is in tatters civil liberties are under constant attack we've seen this huge incursion of corporate and state power into almost every aspect of our lives so twitter is very much part of that in lots of ways tracking everyone's lives at kind of real time we've got this cruel violent immigration regime And we're really only in the early stages of ecological collapse. And I'm not convinced that influencer activism can help us so much with this. So in many ways, we might speculate, I think, that forms of sexual freedom, forms of freedom of personal life, even if they're kind of limited in their horizon of possibility, have come to stand in for a more expansive kind of freedom. So if there is a kind of horizon of queer liberation that's still pertinent, I think that's the conundrum it needs to be addressed to. Absolutely. And I guess um, (laughs) on that note about kind of our material conditions in the UK, I wanted to talk about that. I mean, I don't I also don't want to talk about it. Right. But England is, um, you know, getting big. I mean, there are so many different metaphors you could use for it, but sunken place vibes from England in particular at the minute. And it's not a new trajectory, obviously, but this government in particular has particularly strong death-making energy, right? We've got a new coal mine approved, food shortages, freezing homes, schools are warning that they're gonna go bankrupt, key workers relying on food banks. Somehow the hardest right home secretary yet from like the hardest right lineage of home sex, you know, for generations and anti-strike legislation. I could go on, you've just spoken about it. At the same time, though, we are seeing labour militancy that is unprecedented, at least in our adult lives, I think. And that's something. And I suppose I'm interested in when it comes to class struggle in the UK. If anywhere, where are you heartened by it? Where do you think it's lacking? And how do or how should the class struggles in the UK be connected with, intentionally connected with class struggles internationally? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you're absolutely right. This is in our lifetime the most kind of active and militant wave of industrial action. It's worth remembering how significantly the unions were defeated, actually. 
So James Meadway recently was saying that there was, in 78 to 79, there were 11 million strike days taken. And then since 1990, we've never seen more than 2 million in a year. So I think one thing we have to remember is that, you know, we really have to rebuild from the ground up at this point. Because only one in five workers in the UK is currently in a union. Like That has to change. And obviously that's very daunting. But in some ways, it offers us the possibility of really rebuilding from scratch, which means that some of the problems with the trade unions, the big trade unions are like big ships or something. They're incredibly hard to get them to move. They're not agile. They're not good at responding on the fly. They're really bogged down by bureaucracy. They always follow the legislation to the letter of the law. They're not always the most creative places. So I think that the fact that only one in five workers is in unions are a problem. And at the same time, it means that we can rebuild that movement in a way that is more agile, that is more able to meet the demands of um, labour militancy now without being so bogged down with the structures mm-hmm. that sedimented from decades gone by. And obviously, the rise of those kind of wildcat strike actions at Amazon warehouses in particular is probably the most encouraging sign. I know that the kind of the heft of the RMT uh, is really something to behold and the yeah. bravery of the nurses walking out today as they were recording is, is really something to behold. But I do think in terms of political possibility, walkouts at Amazon warehouses and sit down protests in those kinds of spaces that aren't unionised, that are really hard to unionise. That's, I think, where we can see some real possibility. And I think this government, which, as you say, is incredibly right wing and also staffed by people, like run by people that are actually like completely politically inexperienced and so just governed by like kind of culture war set pieces for the most part, they're incredibly intransigent. Obviously, this is very demoralising, but I think it also makes the antagonism clearer than it was in something like the Cameron years. So I think strong communicators like Mick Lynch at the RMT are doing well to try and keep that antagonism in sight. And that's the kind of story we need to be telling. Like One of the strengths of the Bernie campaign in the US a few years ago was that it did just talk about like how rich people are getting richer. And we need to put that story back into the picture to say, you know, like corporate profits are massively at a point where everyone else is getting poorer. Like We need to keep that in the mix Um, and I think there's also a lot of potential when the trade union movement takes on issues of discrimination actually I think that's a really good example of the way we can take up more space we can make sure that questions of labour militancy are connected to other social struggles so I heard a beautiful example the other day from a member of the sex worker union that said one of the delivery drivers came to the United Sex Workers branch and said um our training says that we can't deliver to sex workers. We can't deliver to a brothel. Wow. And the delivery riders were like, this is crazy. Like, this is a ridiculous bit of the training. And they worked with the sex workers union to work out how to get that struck from the online training, which seems like a small thing. But it's also a genuine moment of real solidarity. And the fact that that solidarity happens through the union branches really matters. So we need to stop letting things get outsourced to NGOs and start actually using the trade union structures to do more creative things. I think that's a really nice example of that. In a similar way, the violence against women's sector, which is full of problems, really their unionising efforts were partly down to their poor conditions, but also a way to protect themselves in pushing for trans-inclusive services in the face of management transphobia. 
So yeah. again, it's like using trade union structures to do things other than the kind of being a union rep who defends someone in a disciplinary hearing to kind of move beyond that service union model, not only to, you know, be on a picket line and to bring an industrial dispute to your employer, but also to push for these other kinds of changes. That's what's going to allow us to defend what we've got and extend what we've got rather than be at the mercy of elite political forces. Mm. I think where we're lacking maybe is a way to connect labour militancy to a wider set of shifts in social consciousness. So, like, we see this massive shift in social consciousness around race, around gender, around sexuality. Then if everyone who came out on the streets in summer 2020 in the global BLM uprisings was a union rep, we'd be in a massively different country. If everyone who came to Pride because they thought it was a good party, which I guess maybe it is, like, if everyone who did that was a union rep, boom, we'd be there. So I think in a way, that's something we need to kind of work out. And it would also add some cultural texture or something, some dynamism to a labour movement that can be a bit slow and sluggish. So in my view, one of the reasons that Corbynism had that big kind of shocking surge in 2017 that we were all like, oh my goodness, we really didn't see it coming, I don't think was partly because it captured something cultural in the zeitgeist. It spoke through things like grime and also through pop music, through its kind of the way it spoke to young people unexpectedly. That connection between the material conditions and a set of cultural politics was momentarily broken. And I think we need to start looking for those kinds of opportunities. Mm. And in terms of the kind of international question, I mean, it's always an enormous question. And I think that I could sort of say, oh, we should be doing this thing. We should be connecting up the struggles of Amazon workers around the world. But the truth is that I don't know that I can kind of proclaim such a thing. I think those strategies are going to have to be found in the day-to-day, in a way, in the texture of organising. So I'd be a bit loath to kind of proclaim that I have an answer to that one. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. It's a question I always ask, I think, in particular, because... For me, I always wanted to work internationally just because I was a linguist, basically. And then, you know, I did my more critical analysis and learning about, you know, international development, NGOs, whatever, colonialism. And then I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not going to go and do that, which meant that I worked pretty much exclusively in England trying to make the British government do stuff. But that also is its own kind of narrowing. Uh, So personally, I'm still thinking about, okay, well, what will my internationalism look like? And I think that's a question for a lot of people. You know, that question of what does international solidarity look like, right, that isn't paternalistic, that is taking a lead from people who are at the sharpest end, but also that is like actually effective and relevant for the context that we are in here. Um, So that's why I always ask that question. It's kind of reassuring that you don't have a set of cut and dried answers, but I think we all should keep asking each other that question and then doing stuff about it, basically. Yeah, I totally agree. And so much of the writing that I turn to is from when a writer I admire went elsewhere. June Jordan, um, her essay about going to Nicaragua, I always come back to it because I'm always like, wow, she just said, I had to go. I had to go and see what these young revolutionaries who were being so crushed by the US government were doing. So I really recommend people read that. Um, It's called Nicaragua, Why I Had to Go There by June Jordan. It always reminds me of the value of going and speaking to people if you can, going and connecting in person with struggles elsewhere if you're able to. So we've taken stock briefly, but I think impressively expansively on your part of kind of queer activism, class struggle, 
what I'm interested in now is what lessons we can learn from past queer mobilizations and activism as we contend with today's crises. You know, for my part, queer analyses of the state and in particular institutions and practices like prison and psychiatry have massively informed my orientation and practice as a police and border abolitionist. And those analyses have also pushed me really hard to imagine futures beyond not just the state, but also the family as we know it. I'm interested in those past movements that you've learned from and what inspires you from them, what experiments you're keen to try as a result. Great, great question. Um, so I've been thinking recently about lesbians and gays support the minors. So that was obviously a group made famous by the film Pride, but I think worth digging a bit deeper. Uh, so I recently read um, Tim Tate's book, also called Pride, it was put together after the film, but tries to kind of dig into what each of the members of both the, the minors that were supported and their families, but also the group LGSM, um, what they took from these struggles and how they came to them. And I was surprised by how many of the people involved in LGSM had already been subject to fairly serious police repression, had been arrested, fined, even spent time in prison for cottaging. Some of them had been subject to the riots in Earl's Court in 76 when police were regularly raiding gay bars. There was very much a kind of culture of police repression in London in the 70s and early 80s. And Tom Robinson's song, Glad to be Gay, which made it into the charts uh, at the end of the 70s, was very much about police harassment as the kind of tip of the spear of societal homophobia. So the fact that LGSM even started is, to me, kind of extraordinary, that a kind of ragtag group of gay lefties in London decided that they absolutely had to come together and support striking coal miners, and they did so largely by shaking buckets outside gay venues, but also then by going to visit villages in South Wales. And I'm keen to think about how we build those links between the trade union movement and the more ragtag bits of the left, because my own mm-hmm. sort of political development has very much happened in that more amorphous extra parliamentary world of feminist organising and queer politics and anti-immigration raids organising and no borders movement of the earlier in the 2000s and no one is illegal and like you know things that really had much more of a anarchist structure and uh, I'm kind of interested in how we bring those two things together how we let them support each other and I think at this point also whether or not some of the new infrastructure of charity things like food banks whether or not they can be drawn into networks of political solidarity like can we politicize that infrastructure because I don't know if we can but I do think we have to try because mm-hmm. if we don't try and meet the issue of poverty head on we're in trouble mm-hmm. trying to work out how we can draw those links together is really important and of course lesbians the gay support the migrants have tried to do that by kind of taking that infrastructure and, and repurposing it I think that's great but I wonder if we need to think more about making those kinds of connections. Because the other thing about LGSM is that people were completely transformed by it. So I think one thing that I always like to really remember is that struggle transforms people. So everyone involved, all the minors, all the people involved in LGSM, Sean James, who went on to be the first woman MP in South Wales, they all talk about how much they learned from each other, how completely transformed they were by each other I think that's so important to remember so in a podcast 
maybe a couple of years ago, Leila Hassan Howe, one of the British Black Panthers, on the Surviving Society podcast, and she really emphasised that being involved in struggle gave her a kind of resilience. It meant that when they faced state repression, when they faced a defeat, they had a way of understanding it that didn't crush them. They said, of course the state is going to come for us because we are strong. So why wouldn't the repressive state come after us? And if you think about, um, if anyone's read Vivian Gornick's lovely book, uh, The Romance of American Communism, all of the people that she interviews that are in the American Communist Party talk about how they took the lessons from that place with them through the rest of their lives. It gave them a feeling of strength. And I think political action of all kinds makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel like you have some agency. It makes you feel like you've got some meaning. Like action gives us that. So I think the more people that are drawn in to that sphere and be able to make meaning through doing things for yourself and with other people, the fewer people that are going to be vulnerable to capture by the far right or by the story of entrepreneurialism. So I think in a way we need to think about we use the word the struggle, but in some ways that, that makes it sound like everything's really hard rather <laughs> than actually working together, doing things for ourselves makes people feel really strong. And we need to make people feel strong. Like we need to be part of making each other feel powerful. In some ways, the lessons from the past are about the fact that that's true and that works. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, speaking to Vijay Prashad, we spent a lot of this series talking to people about actually the actions that made them, like what that made them feel and what it made them want to do. And it's made me think a lot about the actions that I've been part of, the organising that I've been part of. And also just the fact that, yeah, sometimes you will, you know, be sitting around in your NGO job and doing briefings and whatever else, but actually it will be the time after the BLM mobilisations that everybody gets together and is like, what are our demands? What are we going to do? How can we intervene in this conversation? And you don't all normally work together and you get the resources out and then you come away and you're like, that was great. We want to do that again. Or this didn't go that well, but we want to do it this way next time. There's just no substitute for actually doing it. But yeah, I mean, I hope people will do it. Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about trans liberation because right now in the US and the UK in particular, there is a pretty vicious constellation of the far right, the religious right, the media class, in the UK, the remnants of the new skeptics movement, so-called feminists, and of course, various state agencies, all working in concert to limit the lives, the rights and the freedoms of trans people. And as part of the same project, but to a lesser degree, cis women and queer people more broadly. Stuart Hall wrote extensively on moral panics, often in relation to race. And I know that you wrote about the moral panic about LGBTQ inclusive education in 2019. So I'm interested in what you see is happening here. Yes, culturally, but also materially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a really quite awful state of affairs and it's been quite something to watch it develop over the last few years. But I think... I definitely want to take the moral panic question, but I just want to do a little bit of kind of scaffolding because I think that in some ways, one of the things we've missed is asking the question, why are things happening? And lesbians and gay activists in the 70s were really keen to try and understand the material roots of homophobia. And in some ways, we might do well to try and understand the material roots of transphobia. So those kinds of thinkers, people like John D'Amelio, the lesbian left, uh, which is a group in London, the Gay Liberation Front, 
they were up for doing the serious Marxist analysis as well as the drag at the parties and the protests and the kissing. So we've got to get back to a bit of that, I think. And they locate homophobia within the family. So under capitalism, they say the family becomes a site for organising unpaid social reproduction. So women are kind of recruited to do the unpaid social reproduction, and this relies on heterosexual family structures. So this contains a contradiction within it because capitalism also brings its own ironic freedom from the family. So we're kind of pushed into the family, but also in structures of urban life, the growth of cities, we've got forms of freedom from the family. You can be a lone man who can live alone and go out and go to gay bars and suddenly there's a social structure for that. So John D'Amelio says back in the end of the 70s, he says, ideologically capitalism drives people into heterosexual families, but materially capitalism weakens the bonds that once kept families together. So people experience a kind of instability in the family because they come to expect happiness and emotional security in the family. But of course, the family doesn't give us that. Think about your own family. Clearly, it's not all it's cracked up to be the family. So capitalism's knocked the material foundations, he says, away from family life and that gay men, lesbians and heterosexual feminists become the scapegoats for the social instability that ensues. So I think we can think about transphobia a little bit within that same structure that we're disciplined into behaving in certain ways while also given the freedom to behave in other ways and that there's a clash, a contradiction between those two things. So at this point in the West, you know, the heterosexual family actually doesn't do the work it used to do. It can't. We don't live in those heterosexual families in anywhere near the same degree. We all live in a grotty house share until we're 40, if, if not forever. So the notion that our social reproduction is done by this unpaid woman figure, we're all the unpaid woman figure at this point, even if we're not. So I think that might be useful in kind of laying the groundwork for why we're seeing both the rise in trans identities and diverse gender expression and this vicious moral panic about trans people. So people are finding forms of freedom in self-expression and sexual experimentation and refusing the gendered roles we've all been assigned. And, you know, capitalism says, be authentic, be yourself. Individual identity is good. Cultivate your true self. And people are like, all right, and they're doing it. And they're doing it in the space that's been vacated by the nuclear family structure and heterosexual life. So people have fought for this space, fought to make that space and defend it. But material conditions have also changed to allow that fight to happen. And so I think we can see the moral panic as a way to shut down that space, to stabilise the ruptures of late capitalism. So we're seeing massive contestations at the moment over the very building blocks of social reality. And this is where the Stuart Hall moral panics question comes in, I think. So we've got these huge generational distinctions. I think there's that stat that if only people under 40 voted, there'd be like no Tory MPs anywhere in the country. And so the trans moral panic condenses these different crises that are going on at the moment. We've got the crisis of accumulation. We've got a crisis of political legitimacy. A Tory party's constant. I mean, they, they had a government for like 15 minutes. It's, it's quite wild in a way what happened with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwasi, which I'm sure we've all forgotten about by the time this is out. But it's really something, I think. We've got this crisis of generational difference, crisis in the deterioration of living standards, and just a crisis in the meaning of freedom. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to have a life at this moment? And so I think these are the coordinates for organised transphobia. And we need to see it in terms of what it's doing to try and stabilise 
these multiple overlapping crises, rather than to think of it as a kind of prejudice. Because prejudice, we actually have ways to deal with. But this is something else. This is an attempt to kind of manage the ruptures of their capitalism. The relationship between the material basis and also all of those overlapping crises, I think is really helpful. And I guess also helps to counter a turn in a lot of progressive thinking, which I guess is to do with like the NGOization of liberation, which is that, you know, loads of stuff is just somebody's thinking a bad thought and then they're acting on a bad thought. And, you know, we just need to get them to not think the bad thought and maybe they can read something and then that will stop. Um, because it's very clear that that approach to transphobia is absolutely not going to cut it. So I think it's really helpful what you say there. And I guess on that point, I'm also very aware that across the board when we're under threat, by necessity, our response is often to hunker down and defend the status quo or to defend at least whatever meagre advances were being proposed that have become a lightning rod for opposition. So in this instance, it's the Equality Act, it's self-ID, it's state-arranged access to medical care, it's puberty blockers for young, kind of gender-questioning, gender-non-conforming people. All of these things are under threat. But these are also to my mind at least, scarcely the horizon of trans liberation, right? So I'm interested in what lies beyond legal recognition and I suppose more broadly, your thoughts on those tensions between demands for institutional recognition and also those DIY queer subcultures that maybe recognise that we don't want gifts from those institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really tricky one because I can see everyone's desires, including my own, to defend those games. But watching some of these developments is also really depressing. I mean, I think watching people go into bat to defend Stonewall is, I find that very difficult. I mean, Stonewall, in my memory, in the, it can't have been any more than 10 years ago, gave the Home Office an award for being a really great inclusive employer. I don't want to defend an organisation that's doing that. I've got no skin in that game. I think it's a kind of shocking development to watch. I also did a big congratulations to Goldsmiths when Goldsmiths was in the middle of industrial action because Goldsmiths had some MA in gay history that was at risk of being cut because of the huge cuts the management were making and there was no mention of that. So I think we need to be really clear that things are very bad, but to respond in panic is not getting us anywhere. So I think in some ways this going into bat for these liberal organisations is a bit of a panic response um, and that we actually might need to find different ways of responding to that that aren't so reliant on those forms of recognition. I suppose one way to do that is to have a more universal set of horizons. So um, Harry Josephine Giles, a really great artist and activist, talks about bringing gender recognition into general practice. So that instead of waiting forever to get your appointment in Charing Cross or whatever at the gender recognition clinic, instead, maybe your GP could prescribe many of the things that you might need. And that's a really tiny thing. It's a really small idea, but it would actually be life-changing for loads of people. So in some ways, we need to be thinking about what are those kinds of possibilities that don't bring us into a tedious confrontation around the question of are trans women women? Like, this has narrowed our horizons, actually, a fight that takes this question of recognition rather than questions of things like access to therapy, access to all the kind of everyday things you might need. And so lots of trans people talk about how when they go to the doctor about a kind of 
I don't know, having a chest infection. The doctor's like, do we need to send you to the gender recognition clinic to sort this out? And they're like, no, I have to say <laughs> someone who isn't trans, I have a trans broken leg. And so I think in some ways we need to think about like, what are those kind of universalist demands that we can make in the short term? But of course, in the longer term, the question of trans liberation is totally unconnected to all of this because it's about a totally different world, a total reorganisation of how we live, one in which gender is a set of available codes, a set of available erotic aesthetic codes with no material or political force. So I suppose what I mean by that is you could use the aesthetics of femininity or masculinity in ways that felt that they affirmed your sense of self, in ways that they affirmed your sense of desire, but that the work you do, how safe you are walking around at night, whether you can hang out in public without facing sexual harassment, none of that would be determined by the category of gender. And so I think that's the kind of larger, wider horizon. And I suppose one of the things that I would like to see is us get back to a sort of more rowdy, do-it-yourself version of getting what we want. So I sometimes see these kind of campaigns to get toilets changed, to get toilets made gender neutral. And I think we could just put up the sign ourselves. That's what we used to do. I sometimes listen to people say, like, well, we need to change the toilets of the institution. I say, well, okay, we'll just get out a piece of paper. We'll write gender-neutral toilets on them. We'll put it on the sign. And if you do that every day, eventually someone just changes the damn sign. I think, in a way, that kind of banal taking matters into your own hands might give us a sense of freedom, a sense of possibility, but it's not so reliant on petitioning the powers that be for the things that we want and need. Yeah, it's an interesting provocation. And I suppose what you said right at the start about Stonewall, I think it made me think about how much even the amorphous ragtag left, which I think both of us would identify with, how much even that bit of the left has been pulled into pretty institutional fights, partially in panic, but also I think because, and you alluded to this earlier when you kind of said, what if everybody that went on a BLM demo, you know, became a union rep, also because the kind of structures, even the slightly larger scale structures for some of that energy to go into like they're not there so then it's like well of course we'll all write to our MP because that is a concrete action that I can take in solidarity with trans people and if I'm gonna do something rather than nothing like that that is the something so it's about putting you know a broader spectrum of actions on the table not for other people necessarily but for ourselves. Yeah absolutely I sometimes think about the kind of forms of everyday rowdiness that I used to think of as kind of the average way of going about my day but my own professionalisation and inclusion in the new middle class has made me less inclined to do. And I think we all have to kind of get back to being like, no, I would take matters into my own hands and get on with the job. Uh, and we can just encourage each other to kind of not be bought off by the NGO world. Yeah. I think by way of conclusion, and you have already touched on this, obviously one of the really urgent tasks, if not the most urgent task before us, given the number of fronts of attack, is building solidarity across difference, not for its own sake, but in order to build political power and win the material changes that we need. And maybe this touches on what you were just saying about rowdiness, actually, but are there times that you've been part of attempts to do this, or times that you've seen this happen and thought, yeah, I want to I wanna take that lesson and run with it? Great. Um, so I'm always really encouraged when I think about Paul Gilroy's idea of conviviality, so 
Hall is obviously part of the kind of tradition of cultural studies, uh, worked with Stuart Hall and very much thinks in, in a similar fashion, a similar expansive fashion. And Paul Gilroy would say that in everyday life, in cities in particular, we see people live together across difference. We see people think of the distinctions of race and gender, not as irrelevant, but as sort of immaterial to the everyday functioning of their lives. So people really just crack on with creating new cultures of being together in the everyday. Those aren't always explicitly political. In fact, he would say that they're often not explicitly political, but they're there in the texture of everyday life. And I think that's absolutely right. And worth emphasising. And I think there's also rural versions of conviviality and small town versions of conviviality. And that we should hold on to that, partly because when we're struggling to create those networks of solidarity, we should remember that in, in a minor key, in the everyday, people are already doing it. So we need to learn from that. We need to take heart in that. But in a more kind of organised political fashion, one of the things I often come back to is thinking about the Yarlswood protests. So... Over the course of, I guess, 2015 to maybe 2017, I remember getting those dates wrong, there were these huge protests at Yarlswood Detention Centre, spearheaded by Movement for Justice, who there are various problems with the group, um, I wouldn't necessarily stand by many of their decisions, but although they were spearheaded by Movement for Justice, they were attended by an enormous assortment of people some very much part of that NGO world, some part of the trade union movement, some part of that ragtag amorphous left. And thousands of people went, and it was just the most extraordinary sight to see coach after coach arrive in this rubbish, awful situation in like awful home counties, Bedfordshire. And people spending the whole day, sometimes in the snow and rain, sometimes in the glorious sunshine, at the windows of people being held in detention, women mostly being held in detention at Yarswood. And one of the things that I found really powerful is so many of the people that came and led the chants and spoke on the mic were people that had been detained inside the same buildings. And so that was incredibly powerful, I thought. And the day that the fence came down at Yarswood, God bless the person who made that happen. That's an anonymous stranger made that happen, I think, like... Big up the anonymous stranger. Everyone should learn to be an unsung hero. We need thousands of unsung heroes and very few named leaders. Um, and that fence came down and we rushed that over a ditch, the final kind of hurdle. And though we could not bring down the walls of that detention centre, it was really clear that we needed to get as close to the wall itself as possible, that we needed to stand underneath the windows of the people who were being detained, not because it gave us the power to get them out, we still have to build that, that's not a matter simply of turning up, but turning up is absolutely necessary. And I think that looking at the very bizarre mix of people that turned up and the ways in which the very fact of the fence came coming down meant that some of the reformist versus abolitionist debates, to me, looked like they had been momentarily settled by direct action. Not settled forever, but it seemed fairly obvious when people rushed over that ditch and were right underneath the detention centre that something important had happened. And the next time that protest happened, rather than have people tear down the fence a second time, they simply had to open the gate. So you can see there that we made someone, some a few people made a bit of space, they prized open a bit of space. And so that, for me, was the kind of moment where I thought, this is kind of what that solidarity across difference looks like. We, we needed everyone's participation in, in different ways. So I think that, for me, was a kind of moment that 
I really felt was important. I think we can see the beginnings of people trying to organise those coaches to go to Manston, to go to Folkestone, and I think our task is to make them as big and then bigger as those yards would demo. So that's a reminder for me that I need to get on that coach next time, uh, that it's going to Manston, not to Foxton. So I'm, that's, that's good to know. But I think the other thing is that rather than always thinking about how we make solidarity across difference, we need to keep searching and reaching for metaphors, narratives, images, forms that stop people seeing themselves as different in the first place. I know this is an unfashionable idea, I know it sounds like an appeal to liberal humanism, but I'm willing to take the risk of saying so, because I think there are other humanisms waiting for us to fashion them. So uh, M.A. Césaire, the poet, in the language of a poet, calls it a humanism made to the measure of the world. This should be our horizon. Um, And I think at the beginning of the pandemic there was an opportunity that I think we slightly missed the boat on. So many people were saying, and these were not communists, these were people who would very much consider themselves apolitical, people said we cannot go back, we cannot go back to life as it was. This was quite an ordinary refrain, it said everything will be different after this. And now we've gone kind of worse than back, I think, we've gone to a kind of new reality that might be even worse. But our deteriorating conditions also mean that we are not unlikely to end up in another global crisis. I think that Maybe we won't have the same lockdowns. Maybe the necro-political British state version of things will win out and it will be like, oh, just we'll just let you die. We don't really care anymore. But a crisis of a global magnitude is always on the way. Sometimes it's going to arrive closer or later. We don't know. And we have to be ready with a vision, with some hope, with some ideas that match the magnitude of the crisis. Because I think when people were saying, This is extraordinary. This is changing how I think about the world. We cannot go back. We can't organise society like this anymore. In a way, we weren't sufficiently there to say, yes, that's right. And this is the other vision. And I think that, in a way, we've got to be ready. We've got to be more ready for that. We've got to build those small links. Because when that crisis comes, if we don't feel it, someone else will. Thank you for listening to episode five of the Locating Legacies podcast on queer class politics. Join us for the final episode in the series where I'll be speaking with author and abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore about how we might apply abolitionist politics in the UK context. Thanks and see you next time. Uh